When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. We're in the height of summer here in Britain, where we make something rhymes with purple. And one thing we British folk go berserk, bonkers, mad for, is a summer of sport. We've just had Wimbledon, and now it's cricket's turn to dominate the back pages and occasionally the front pages for the next few weeks or even months. Uh, Susie, Dent, are you a cricket fan? say I would sit down and watch the cricket on the telly but uh, on those few occasions when the ashes have been incredibly tight then I love nothing better than listening to Aggers, Jonathan Agnew, the brilliant cricketing commentator on the radio. So I actually listen to most of my sport rather than watch it and I love it that way. Football, Formula One, whatever, I just find so much more exciting strangely on the radio. I'm with you there totally. There's a kind of poetry about the cricket commentators. You don't really need to understand what is going on. Being of an older generation than you, I remember Brian Johnston. Oh, and yes. Just to hear his plummy voice talking about the cricket, I didn't really follow. I mean, I just wanted them to be making amusing talk about what they'd be having during the tea break, what the cake might be. Well, that the batsman's holding the bowler's willy. Oh, yes, indeed. Well, that was very funny, wasn't it? Because there was a batsman genuinely called um, uh, Holding. Holding. And there was genuinely (laughs) uh, a bowler called Willie or the other way around. That was the one where you just heard the tinkle of the teaspoon, didn't you? And then nobody could say anything because they were laughing so hard for about two minutes. Uh, He had such a good giggle. There are people for whom cricket is everything. It's their comfort blanket. I remember many years ago when I was a member of parliament The then Prime Minister, John Major, because he had trouble over Europe and people were saying they didn't have confidence in him, he stepped down as leader of the party, though continuing as Prime Minister, and put himself for re-election. And the night before the vote was going to be announced, he was sitting in the House of Commons alone. And one of the whips said, the Prime Minister's sitting on his own, you better go and sit next to him, keep him company. And I thought, what am I going to say to him? Anyway, I sat down next to the Prime Minister, and it was a tough night. He might have no longer been Prime Minister within a few hours. And I couldn't think of a thing to say to him, and he couldn't think of a thing to say to me. And then coming to sit at the same table on the other side of him was a man called Peter Brook, who had been Home Secretary, was Culture Secretary. Anyway, he was uh, the same sort of... He was a bit older than John Major, and he sat down next to him, and he began chatting to him about... Uh, the bodyline argument in cricket in the 1930s. 
And suddenly John Major was transformed, and these two men talked about cricket quite happily for half an hour. I didn't know what the language was, who the people were, but clearly it was something that was for them Mm. all engrossing. Mm. As a child, I did play cricket, and the report always said, Giles has scored well again this term, meaning I'd lain in the long grass, um, (laughs) keeping the score. It's a world with its own vocabulary, though, isn't it? Yes, it definitely is, um, for sure. Uh, You've just reminded me of um, two things. One is listening to John Major and Mick Jagger wax lyrical together about the Ashes uh, once. Two a sort of unlikely meeting, but again, they're they're sort of they were joined by their their passion for that sport. And also on Countdown, Rachel Riley, who is a a co-presenter, being asked by Nick Hewer, the presenter at the time, "Do you like cricket, Rachel?" And she said, "No." In the infamous words of Bob Marley, "I don't like cricket." And of course, she even got that wrong because it's 10, it's 10 cc, isn't it? I think. Anyway. Um, do, Before we start, yes. can I just give you what body line bowling is since I've mentioned it? Yes. Um, because I then went and looked it up, having felt so hopeless. I thought, this is the answer. If ever I'm stuck next to somebody and they are likely to be of a vintage who would know about cricket, I can talk about body line bowling. Do you know, Susie Dent, what it is? I have absolutely no idea. Body line bowling, sometimes known as leg theory, it involved a large number of fielders being placed on the leg side while a fast bowler aimed the ball directly at the batsman, causing him to fend the ball away from his body, thus offering the possibility of a catch, not to mention injury to the batsman concerned. And body line came to prominence when England toured Australia in 1932-33. So that's 90 years ago, and yet people are still talking about it. Harold Larwood was the chief exponent, and the tactic caused massive unrest down under. The cricket authorities were not amused. Bodyline bowling was later outlawed. No more than two fielders may now be placed behind the wicket on the leg side. So there you are. Uh-huh. There you have it. So you begin to take us through all this. Explain to us how the language of cricket has evolved so that we who don't really understand it can be introduced to it. As with all sports, I suppose, it's evolved over time and it's influenced really by games that came before. So the first reference that we have in the OED to cricket is from 1598 and it's in the borough records of the, uh, is it the city of Guildford? Guildford is a city, isn't it? Because it's got a cathedral. Well, um, that and- doesn't. Uh, can I say that doesn't automatically apply? Oh, okay. Most cities do have a cathedral, but you're not by definition a city because you uh, have a cathedral. Okay. So the the uh, what we read here in the borough records of Guildford are John Denick of Guildford, one of the Queen's Majesty's coroners of the county of Surrey, being of the age of fifty and nine years or thereabout, saith upon his oath that he hath known the parcel of land for the space of fifty years or more, and saith that he, being a scholar in the preschool of Guildford, he and several of his fellows did run and play there at Cracket and other plays. So Mm. it's spelled C-R-E-C-K-E-T-T. So that Mm. is, as I say, 1598. And it began to develop pretty much in the southeast, where of course Guildford is, of England in the 16th and 17th centuries. And then the earliest known version of the laws of the game goes back to 1744. So that's when it began to be uh, formalised. And by the end of that century, so the end of the 18th century, organised cricket was much more common. And by the 19th century already, it was the English national game. And, you know, it was the sort of ultimate expression of our national identity or Englishness, uh, really, in general. And of course, now it's played 
right across the world, but particularly those that used to be under British colonial rule, like Australia, South Africa, West Indies, etc. So that that's how it's evolved. But it's funny because cricket itself, the name of the sport, is etymologically a little bit elusive. So we're not completely sure where it comes from. It possibly does come from France because there is a mention of a bat and ball game called Criquet in a village near Pas de Calais. And it, this is in 1478. And Criquet is an old French word meaning a post, you know, like a wicket. Mm. So mm. that does suggest that it comes to France. And of course, did you used to play French cricket as a child? I did, I think. Is that where you sort of stand... Well, you hold the bat in a different way and you just sort of bat it away. I mean, I do remember playing French cricket, but I'm not sure what French cricket is, but it rings a bell. Well, there's no sort of wicket as such. I used to play it with a tennis racket, which I think was completely not allowed. But essentially, the whole idea is that you've got lots of other people trying to hit the ball at your legs. And so you have to defend the lower part of your legs. And if it hits your leg, then you're out. Um, But obviously, if you can bat it far away, that's great. But I don't, not sure it involves doing any runs, but the purple people will be able to, um, to enlighten us there but I do I do remember enjoying that as a child but so yes so cricket possibly does come from a France but as I say we haven't quite nailed down the name of the game if you think you have the answer you just get in touch with us it's purple at something else.com something without a g and I will just say to save you writing to us immediately that I do know that Guildford is not a city Though it has, oh, is a it not? It's definitely not a city. Uh, okay, uh, in fact, people in Surrey often complain that they have no city in Guildford. Woking, I think, is the largest town. Even that isn't a city. Um, Walton on Thames isn't a city. Guildford isn't a city. Having a cathedral or a university can help you become a city, but it's in the gift of the sovereign. The Queen decides who becomes a city. And I was the Member of Parliament for the City of Chester when it wasn't actually a city. It was just called the City of Chester. It didn't become a city until after I was already the Member of Parliament for it. So it's it's a funny way it works. Yes, it is. Oh, well, thank you for that. So should we, should we dive into this let's, sometimes let's arcane in. world of cricket vocabulary? Uh, by the way, if you hear um, the gentle or not so gentle, the insistent buzz of what sounds like a thousand hornets in uh, in my neck of the woods that's actually someone cutting their hedge next door so let's start with the names for positions on the pitch because they are quite technical in cricket and they are very often very arcane so we have literally quite silly <laughs> silly names we have the slip and the gully i know you're going to stop me in a minute but i'm just going to run through some of the things that we have uh, is we have mid wicket and cover point we have leg of course and in the 19th century there was a position that's simply called leg and that's a fielder who's on the leg side but that wasn't enough so leg on its own disappeared and now we have square leg fine leg long leg short leg and we also have silly point so this will give anyone who's not totally immersed in the language of cricket an idea of it's a bit like it's a bit like golf isn't it that it is very sometimes very impenetrable to any outsider and and in some ways that was that was the point so the positions are as i say a little bit silly but they do have i think some kind of logic behind them so we have slip and slip is for a fielder who stands behind the batsman or batswoman to catch anything that slips off the bat then we have silly mid off which sounds ludicrous but it is silly apparently, because the fielder stands in the direct firing line of the the batter. So it's silly, as in stupid. It's a silly place to be standing. Yes, it's a silly place to be standing, but it is an official position. And then there's gully, 
not our lovely gully, but gully, a fielding position that sits in the narrow alley between the point and the slips. And it is like a, it's like a gully. That's why it's it called is. a gully. So there is some kind of logic there. It just, um, it does sound quite strange. And it's, you know, all of this has been around for absolute centuries and hasn't changed very much at all. So those are the fielding positions. We'll get to the the, the type of bowling techniques perhaps in a minute. But should, what about test matches? Do you, do you get involved in the test matches or do you like the the one-day matches? I'm, <laughs> as if I knew the difference. <laughs> uh, I can't pretend that I understand. I mean, I'm still sort of gasping at all this extraordinary language. I, I mean, I, the test match goes on for a few days and a one-day is obviously lasts one day. Why is it called a test match? Is it named after the river Test? Um, oh, no, that's quite a nice one. Well, um, first of all, so yes, test match, I think, takes a maximum of five days. And the one day, obviously, is one day, usually one day international. Uh, different numbers of overs, etc. Advantages and disadvantages to both. I think it's just a matter of, of taste. You know, there's a lot more drama sometimes in one day internationals. But, you know, true cricket fans, I'm sure, will take me up on that. It is very much a matter of choice. But test match goes back to the simple idea that a match or game is played to test, which is the better of two players or teams. Um, I mentioned the Ashes. I mean, the Ashes are are just wonderful to listen to if it is it is a very very good series that's the test match between england and australia it's held every two years do you know why it's called the ashes something to do with burning the stumps not the stumps but the little things that sit on top of the stumps is it that right? was first first used after England lost to Australia for the first time on home soil at the Oval in 1882. And apparently it goes back to the report the day after in the Sporting Times that had a mock obituary of English cricket. And uh, it finished by saying the body will be cremated and the ashes taken to Australia. Oh, so there, there aren't any actual ashes. Or I don't there? think there are. I don't know if there are now sort of ceremonially ashes um, involved, but, uh, but oh, that's well, where it comes from. No, I'm now looking up something and I see that the Sporting Times, having written this obituary, somebody cremated a bale and placed it in an urn and the urn was later presented to the Australians as a trophy, but then returned to Lords, you know, the headquarters of English cricket. And that's where it remains to this day. I mean, gosh, it's a complicated world. And they like to speak their own language because why is this language not more inclusive? Why is it, as it were, a vocabulary all of their own? Well, it goes back to any tribal shorthand, doesn't it? And we often talk about this, how language is an identifier. It's a marker. I mean, teen slang delineates the group. And if you're in it, you know the lingo. If you're out of it, you don't know the lingo. And the people out of it are normally parents and anybody who is unwanted. So it's very much designed to keep insiders in and to make them feel like they are part of an important group. But as you say, sometimes when they're steeped in the vocabulary of centuries past, it can become quite isolating. But some of it is quite clever. So I, I always think, you know, cricket is it's always sort of been positioned as a quite romantic sport, definitely associated with the upper classes, you know, picturesque village greens, uh, interval for tea and cake, um, and then a drink as the sun sets at the end of the day. But it's a little bit, the way they're sort of positioned on the field, it's a little bit like, a, almost like a chessboard or knights and archers on a sort of medieval battlefield, really. Um, and then the, the vocabulary can be quite sort of pastoral. Uh, so there's a lot of agricultural vocabulary in there. 
So you have the barn door and the stonewaller. Those are batters who um, are defensive and difficult to dismiss. And then you've got the hick, which is somebody who can sort of bat by brute force, but is actually quite unsophisticated. Um, In fact, if you sort of have quite an ungainly swing of the bat and it looks a bit like you're using a scythe, that is actually called agricultural. Oh, he's a bit of an agricultural batter. Um, there's a cow shot, there's having a mow, there's cow corner, there's in the long grass. There's quite a lot of that kind of pastoral idyllic vocabulary that's preserved even now. I mean, are you going to tell me more about the cow shot? Oh, so the cow shot is, again, it's the idea who... Um, who kind of plays in a very sort of unsophisticated way, but with a lot of power. So uh, if you imagine being run down by a cow, I suppose that's the idea. It's a sort of, you know, very unsubtle, but it does the job. And also, if you have such brute force that you aim your shot at cow corner, the idea that that part of the pitch might be populated by cows because it's so remote. Um, It's probably true, you know, looking back. I mean, there probably were cows (laughs) around the cricket matches. Uh, And then there's the long grass as well, as I say. Sometimes the grass grew long even as they were playing. You know, you were mentioning test matches lasting now five days and once apparently they lasted six days. But I think I'm right in saying that there were things called timeless tests a few years ago. And there was a famous one. This is material garnered by me from John Major, former Prime Minister. There was one of these played in just before the Second World War, 1938-39, a timeless test. A total of 1,981 runs were scored by the two sides over a 10-day period. But the match still ended in a draw and uh, rain came down. And um, anyway, the, they had to bring it to a close because the England players were due to catch the boat home. So that's probably wow. why they abandoned timeless tests. That's that's interesting. And then there's 2020 cricket, which we haven't mentioned as, as well. That's a shortened form, another shortened form, but innings are limited to 20 overs a side, so it's called 2020. So as I say, I think it's it's definitely a matter of taste which one you prefer, and indeed it's probably the same for um, for the players. Gosh, there's so much here. I mean, I want to know. I want to know all about the pavilion and, and the wicket and the crease and the boundary, why they're so-called, why is an innings an innings. Uh, let's leave the pitch Pitch? Where does that come from? Let's leave the pitch for a moment and take a quick break. This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. It isn't quite cricket. That's an interesting expression that comes from the world of cricket, which we're exploring with two people, Giles Brandreth and Susie Dent. Susie seems to know a lot about the language of cricket. I know absolutely nothing about cricket, but I'm discovering a lot just listening to Susie. Pitch. We play it on the pitch. I've heard of pitch and toss. I've heard of being, you know, something being as pitch and tar but what is the playing pitch um, yeah I words? just you know this is why I love this podcast because you know there are some things that I have uh, been talking about all my life and never thought I wonder where that comes from yeah I think the cricket pitch etc goes back to the verb to pitch which was to you know if you pitch your tent you drive in a stake don't you, you pierce it with a sharp point and I think then from that idea of marking your position if you like so by thrusting your tent 
pins or your wickets indeed onto a piece of ground that gave us the sort of surface on which things are played the place where the wickets are pitched etc so i think that's where it comes from like pitching a tent when you're putting up a tent you're pitching a playing field you're outlining where you're going to play your game of cricket yeah and you're pitching your wickets i suppose and the wicket explain that to us the word wicket okay so so many words that we use in cricket where we don't actually know the etymology and um, cricket itself and wicket is another one that you you mentioned when we were talking about insects do you remember last week that there was there a link between guip a wasp and guichet and a guichet in french is it's a grill opening at a ticket office so you go oh. to the guichet at the gare at the station and you get your ticket but it can also mean wicket and i'm wondering if it's because you know you have those three stumps that resemble that kind of grill that you used to have in old-fashioned ticket offices oh. um, but where it comes from before that we just don't know there are similar words in old norse meaning to move or to turn. But honestly, we just don't know. It seems to have come in after the Normans, but why? We're not sure. We're stumped. Ha-ha. Stumped. Takes us to the stumps. Where where do they come from? Yeah, so stumps is... A a stump is essentially, you know, like a tree stump. It's a block of wood. So that, um, yeah, simply explains that one. And the bale that goes across the top, the little bale? The bales, which are either of the two cross pieces that bridge the stumps, and of course that's what the bowlers and the feelers try to dislodge with the ball uh, to get them out. That seems to go back to a French word, baillé, meaning to enclose, and possibly that came from the Latin baculum, meaning a rod or a stick, uh, which incidentally is also behind bacillum and bacteria because under a microscope little bacteria look like little sticks. What I do remember from my days of playing cricket at school was the rule that the bale had to fall if you were going to be called out. However hard the stump was hit, however disfigured it was, unless the bale fell off the top, uh, you weren't out. And I remember that only because I was jumped out of the way. When, when the ball came so fast, so hard and fast, I just jumped out of the way. Anyway. And the first um, hat trick as well. Did you ever get one of those? That oh, did I get a hat trick? No. I was bowled out for, oh, I was going to say a googly, but I don't even know what a googly is. A hat oh, trick we'll is, is three, isn't it? Yes, a hat trick is, is three. And various theories as to where this came from, but it, it genuinely does seem to have started in cricket where somebody would get a hat if they scored a hat trick. So if a bowler got three successive batters. Three wickets out, in a row. Yeah, three wickets in a row. You can tell we really know our cricket. <laughs> I'm sure there are purple people absolutely tiring their hair out at this point. But if the subject was Jiminy cricket, <laughs> I can tell you I'd be whistling a happy tune. What about the crease? I do remember the crease. Yeah, that's that simply is because it's a it's a boundary and looks a little bit like a crease. I think there's nothing nothing more to it than that. Boundary, um, very, very old. But, it, you know, again, I was looking at this and, and just it seems so elusive, this vocabulary. We don't actually know the ultimate origin of boundary. Um, we know that Shakespeare used to call it a bourne, B-O-R-N-E, and that that itself is linked to a boundary. But Beyond that, we're not completely sure. So it's it's a strange one. Having been to India a number of times, I know that the word innings in India, mm. they call it an inning. They don't call it innings. And that makes total sense, actually, doesn't it? That it's an inning rather than an innings, because it sounds weird to have the S and make it singular. So innings, our first reference is that 1735, and it's simply a division of the game, isn't it, in which one side bats or is in. In other words, it's their turn, the turn taken by one team at batting. So they're in in play. 
Can we do some of the stuff about the scoring? I mean, this language, you know, out for a duck, golden duck and a diamond duck. I mean, So if there's a number that cricketers obsess about, it is definitely zero. And that is when a batter is dismissed without scoring any runs. But they obviously don't call it that. So it began as a duck's egg. So a duck's egg obviously is round, looks like a zero, and that's as simple as it was. And it started in schoolboy slang, as you might imagine, to mean naught, zero. But there is also, as you say, golden duck. That's used for when the batter is dismissed with the first ball they face. Then if a batter is dismissed without scoring in both innings of the same match, they bag a pair. And if both dismissals are the first ball, which must be just the worst fate in the world, that becomes a king pair. And if a batter is unfortunate enough to be dismissed without facing a single ball from a bowler, it can happen apparently, they are described as having a diamond duck or a platinum duck. It's a bit like anniversaries, isn't it? Well, interesting that the, the pair that you referred to there, I thought when I was a child, it's going back a long way, it was called a pair of spectacles. But a ah. score of naught in both innings, a pair oh, of well, spectacles. Oh, that's good. I like, like that. You know, like gig lamps. Oh, I like that. That's really good. I think now the score of zero is also known as a blob or a balloon. Uh, oh. So that's just a bit of extra tribal talk for you. I'm just going to finish with some of the bowling techniques because everyone will have heard of uh, a googly and that is a ball which breaks from the off, which is also called a wrongen or in Australia, a bosey after its inventor, Bernard Bosenkett. I know you're going to ask me why googly. The honest answer is we don't know. Um, again, lots and lots of theories, but we don't know. There is a flipper. That's a faster skiddy ball that's bowled by leg spinner. There's a Dusra, which comes from the Hindi or Punjabi word for second. There's jaffas, there's lollipops, there's all sorts of special deliveries. And you know what? I think maybe we should do a bonus episode on these because I think we're running out of time and I've got a list of about 20. Well, look, so if you want to know more about the unique lingo associated with the cricket, do sign up to the Purple Plus Club, where alongside uh, ad-free listening, you will get lots of bonus content on cricket, as well as poetry and swear words and lots of other things that we have fun with in the Purple Plus Club. Uh, to do that, all you do is follow the link in the programme description. Well, I think we've done enough for cricket for one day. It isn't quite cricket. That, that, how long has that expression been around? It isn't quite cricket. It's just not cricket. Again, I think that goes back to um, when it was being seen, probably 19th century, maybe early 20th century, when, when it was, if it's just not cricket, it's just not the way that England plays. Um, you know, it's, it has become as stereotypical as the stiff upper lip, which, as you remember, was American, really. But yeah, it's just not cricket. goes back, I think, quite a long way. Feel free to put us straight on cricket by getting in touch with us. You can send us a voice message or indeed you can send us an email. It's purple at somethingelse.com. And people have been in touch, haven't they? They certainly have. And the first one to hear from, I'm not sure quite how I pronounce your name, Chris, but it's Chris Caprice, I think, which is lovely. So it's K-A-P-R-Y-S. Hello, Susie and Giles. I live on a farm and recently while driving past a bale of hay, something struck me. Luckily, it was just a little purple thought. What does the pitch of pitchfork refer to? My first thought was of musical pitch and whether the farmer's pitchfork is related to a tuning fork. I doubt this is the answer as agriculture surely predates the settling of musical standards, but that's just a hunch. Then I thought of the tar-like substance that I believe is used for waterproofing, for example, on roofs and boats, as in the pitch black stuff. 
Perhaps the pitchfork was at one point more commonly used to shift this muck. Thinking of boats made me realize pitch is also used to refer to the orientation around an axis in 3D space, as in pitch, yaw, and roll. Then again, you can pitch something over the side, as well as pitch a baseball, so I wonder if it's simply a reference to throwing and spreading the hay with this tool. Just pitching a few ideas while drinking cool lemonade poured from a pitcher. Such a multi-talented homonym, I wonder if pitch has more meanings than Giles has jumpers. Thank you both for making the world of words ever more wonderful. Chris in Colorado. Isn't that lovely? That is lovely. And uh, we touched on pitch, didn't we, just a minute ago. And you could tell that I was slightly flummoxed because there's no straight sense development of this word in all its different meanings. And Chris has outlined them all beautifully there. So the name of the sticky dark substance that he mentions, that goes back to the Latin pix. But the other pitch that has senses ranging from the quality of a musical sound through the cricket pitch that we were talking about, the area of ground for a game, to pitching, as in aiming at a target, if you pitch an idea, that is all really unclear. We don't quite know what the journey was. But I can, hurrah, tell you that a pitchfork hasn't really got anything to do with that kind of pitch because it used to be a pick fork, which oh. makes much more sense that you pick things up with your fork. But it was influenced by the idea of pitching or throwing sheaves onto a stack. So you were pitching it by throwing it. So it was a pick fork. Let's leave it at that. I think that makes much more sense. But of course, we had to go and uh, mess it up a little bit because we began associating it with something else. Very good. Thank you for that. We've got another query here. This is from Patrick Lochlin. Hi, Al. Love the podcast. Keep it up. I was told SCRAN is an acronym that stands for Sultanas, Currents, Raisins and Nuts. Is this true? Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. Um, no, it's not true. And I, I have to say, a bag of sultanas, currants, raisins and nuts doesn't particularly appeal to me. This reminds me, Giles, of GORP amongst walkers. GORP, G-O-R-P, is an acronym for granola, oats, raisins and peanuts, or good old raisins <laughs> and peanuts, which is the kind of useful sustenance on the trail. But no, it seems to not have anything to do with that and have everything to do with an Icelandic term, skran, S-K-R-A-N, which means rubbish or odds and ends. But even that has been not completely tied down. We do know it goes back to 1724. It's been around for a while, particularly in criminal slang. And skran in those days actually could also mean a reckoning or a, a tab at a pub, a boozing ken, as they used to call it. And it was in nautical slang, really, that scran came to mean food or rations. Cold scran was cold refreshment, really. But I think the idea of sort of miscellaneous items that are kind of cobbled together in that Icelandic sense, even though we haven't, as I say, completely proved that, I think that makes sense to me. Totally. Do send us your emails. We love to hear from you. And we do our best to give you answers, though, to some questions that aren't answers. You've got three words for us this week, Susie. Are they intriguing ones? They usually are. Uh, yeah, well, I hope so. Um, they've all sort of got a, a history to them. Um, the first one, it's not, it just doesn't sound particularly nice, but this is something that I'm hoping we'll be able to have, have to do a little bit over the summer, and that's to use a fan to cool down, but obviously not too much. We don't want heat waves. We don't want climate change, but we might want a little bit of flabulation. Mm. Flabulation goes back to the Latin flabulum, meaning a fan. So to flabulate is to use a fan to cool down. 
So that's the first one. Uh, the second one, if I was asking you to Fletcherize more, Giles, you know what I'd be asking you? Fletcherize. Yes. Something to do with bows and arrows. A Fletcher. Oh, no. It's actually an eponym because uh, to Fletcherize is to chew your food very, very slowly. And it goes back to a doctor called Fletcher who advised that everybody choose their food at least 30 times before swallowing it. I've tried I've tried that. I can't get past 10. Well, my father was very keen on this and in the 1920s when he was a boy, if you had your grape nuts for breakfast, you had to choose 15 times on one side of the mouth, 15 <sighs> times on the other well, before you, you swallowed. Yeah, that's so, fletcherizing. Well, how interesting. So, probably a figure from the beginning of the 20th century. 15 on each side. Gosh, okay, I'll have to have another go at it. And finally, this just reminded me, I was reminded of this rather because I had to go up in my loft the other day and search for something. And I went out without a flashlight, could not see where I was going and hit my head very hard on a beam. Nyctalopia, N-Y-C-T-A-L-O-P-I-A. Nyctalopia means poor vision in low light. Nycto being nighttime version. Nycto being nighttime and, and uh, opia. Yes, they have myopia, etc. That means the, the vision part. Three intriguing words. Thank you. What about your poem for us well, today? Well, I've deliberately chosen a poem that's got nothing to do with cricket, to, to give people who are not into sport something a little different at the end of the podcast. And this is a very intriguing poem because it's the only poem by this author that I know to have been published. And I was introduced to it by the novelist Teresa Waugh. And she encountered an old lady who was 98 at the time of her meeting her, uh, an old lady called Patricia O'Brien. And this lady had spent a lifetime writing poetry and had never had any of it published. And she met Teresa Waugh when she was 98 and said, I would love to have one of my poems published. And Teresa Waugh set about getting a poem published. And she got to know this lady, who, she told me, was a remarkable person. And she grew very fond of her during the short time she knew her. In fact, she said only a week or two before she died, Patricia O'Brien was dancing with her Zimmer frame oh. as a carer in the home squeezed out old tunes on a squeeze box. How amazing. She had a love of poetry that was intense and could recite reams of it uh, by heart to her dying day. So I'm going to read to you the only poem that we know published by this lady. And I, I read it because I think it's a lovely piece of verse. But also, if people are listening, thinking, actually, I write poetry, I've never had it published, there's always hope. You could be 98 before your first poem is published. And it might be as good as this one, which is called This Time, Next Time by Patricia O'Brien. All in a ring they sang together, this time, next time, sometime, never. Laughing girls who dropped together, this time, next time, sometime, never. This time, next time, sometime, never, sang the lovebird from the tree. Surely my love will come to me, this time, next time, perhaps never, sang the lovebird from the tree. Golden days in gilded weather, my love, my love has come to me, and we shall dance and sing together, constant and true in all our weather. This time, glad time, joyfully, sang the lovebird from the tree. This time, next time, sometime never, my love, my love has gone from me. Dropped through a hole in the world has he, out of time to eternity, and never again to come to me, and never again to come to me. Oh. That's so sad. It's a sad poem, but I think it's rather beautiful, rather affecting, 
and amazing. A lady of 98 had written that, and she was so determined that somehow it would get an audience that she persuaded the novelist Teresa War to find somewhere to publish it, and it fell into my hands, and I thought, yes, well done you. Let me share this rather poignant poem. That's lovely. I love the golden days and gilded weather. Yeah. Yes, love that. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Charles, and thank you to everybody who's listened and for putting up with our uh, rather distinct lack of cricket knowledge. Um, if you love the show, please uh, keep following us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts. And please do recommend us to friends because that also means a lot to us. Most of all, though, please do get in touch via purple at something else.com. Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells with additional production from Chris Skinner, Jen Mystery, Jay Beale and In the Crease with a googly. It's... Oh, it's Gully. I'm putting him in Cow Corner. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov extrahelp extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.